Uh, hello, everybody. This is uh, Bill Falk, uh, Rock Bottom to Recovery. Uh, we're getting ready to end our 2017 um, season, and we're going to be kicking off the 2018 season. We have Zach, which is our producer. It's where we do our show. Zach is sitting in. He is the eye candy for today's show uh, because uh, <laughs> Shane couldn't make it. Um, but um, um, And today, what we want to do, as you know, Rock Bottom to Recovery, we're all about talking about the um, every road to recovery because it's different for every person. Um, but to get on that road to recovery, you have to start with some type of an addiction. And so our guest today is Dr. Ruth Pote, um, and she uh, specializes in addiction in the undeveloped uh, brain and the adolescence. Is that correct, Dr. Ruth? That's correct, yep. All right, so could Dr. Ruth, could you... Um, um, just kind of give us a little background on um, who you are sure. and how you got there, and we'll start sure. there. Excellent. So I'm actually, I'm a family doctor. I'm a rural family doctor in Western Massachusetts, and um, it's what I wanted to do since I was a little kid, actually. But I trained at Boston City Hospital, um, and I actually started my residency and started prescribing opiates in South Boston at the South Boston Community Health Center in the 1990s. And at that time, for those of us who were living in the Boston area, South Boston was an epidemic um, center for both overdose and addiction to OxyContin, but also high suicidality at the time. And uh, I was training in residency at a time where pharmaceutical reps were allowed in the hospital. In fact, they often would bring meals to you. They would be providing meals three times a day. And Purdue Pharma, who that's the company that makes OxyContin, was a very prominent um, drug rep in many facilities in the 1990s and well into the 2000s. So uh, my original training is as a family physician. I am a family physician today. I saw patients today. I saw a 91-year-old and a brand-new baby and everything on the in-between and all chronic diseases on the in-between this morning. And then as time passed, I began to um, have more of a focus on addiction, partly because I saw it all the time, and it was clear that other people um, had less interest in managing people with addiction. And I, um, I feel like my job is to help people who suffer and people with addiction suffer and families suffer more than almost any other disease I know. And the amount of sort of community support that people with addiction get and families get is, has always been historically very low. The amount of stigma that people face when they struggle with addiction is tremendous. So I transitioned a Boston-based practice out to my old home base in Western Massachusetts. And when I arrived in Franklin County, which is the most rural county in Massachusetts, I asked the question, who's helping people with addiction? And the answer was, you don't know what you're talking about. And I thought, holy smokes, there's plenty of addiction around here. Somebody's got to be focused on this. So it was in the very beginning, I would say, of the opiate prescription epidemic converting over into heroin. And people were dying. We were reading obituaries of young, young healthy people dying unexpectedly at home. And since that time, about a third of my practice now is focused on addiction, whether to alcohol or opiates or cocaine. It's about a third of what I do these days. I'm the medical director of the local um, House of Corrections in Franklin County. I'm the medical director of a drug and alcohol detox. We don't call it a detox, but a treatment center. It's based in Greenfield. I have lots of other jobs, but I do go out and speak um, in New England on the physiology of addiction and what happens to the developing brain. 
Yeah, and um, um, and I saw you and um, uh, give one of your presentations, which I thought was extremely powerful. Because as we began rock bottom to recovery, um, or better yet, when I before rock bottom to recovery, we belonged to the Hope Cares Coalition, and uh, and we started that three years ago. And one of the things we're just a grassroots organization wanted to change the the um, um, the problems that were in the community, bring education, bring awareness, but we couldn't do that until we began to educate and bring awareness to ourselves on how addiction begins, right. which that's how that led me to you as I, I saw you give your presentation. I just thought, wow, this is powerful. This is like, this is where we need to start. Like we need to really educate ourselves in this field. And so, um, right. and I, just so you know, I am a, a, a correction officer at a house of corrections about you yes so uh wow. i'm great. right in there so <laughs> but uh, real quick like um so obviously um you see that in the correctional facilities correct yeah so do yeah. you though right oh yeah there's yeah. no there's no county correctional facility or state facility that isn't 80 to 90 to 95 percent substance use disorder that's what right. people get locked up for right a lot of which is alcohol though i think i think we focus a lot on opiates and, and what heroin has done to our community but alcohol has been a problematic substance for so many people and has destroyed families and communities and locked people up in jail um historically more than any other drug. And we see more women drinking in excess and getting themselves in trouble than we've ever seen historically. So I never minimize the role that alcohol plays in the misfortune of many of us. Well, it is it is the number one abuse among teens, correct? Um, you know, interestingly, our teenagers are making better choices than we've ever seen historically. And the rates of cigarette smoking are incredibly low among teenagers. The rates of alcohol use have gotten way lower than they did in the 80s and the 90s. And in the 2000s, they progressively make better decisions. So alcohol and marijuana, depending on where you live, run neck and neck. In some of our western metro west suburbs, vaping of nicotine is a very common problem. So okay. um, nicotine is, an addiction, is obviously a real one, too. But in general, our teenagers make great decisions, partly because they're better informed. It's not it's not just the scare tactics anymore. We really try to teach teenagers that if you delay your use until after your brain is done developing, you can actually avoid the disease of addiction almost altogether. And if kids know that, they actually can make better decisions. And it shows it shows that they are making better decisions. So it just lets us they know. They are making better Yeah, it yes, lets us know. If we give them decisions. the information, they're going to make the right decision. So with that That's said... Right. Um, I would like to, the, the first question I would like to have, because I hear this a lot is, and this is a quote from your website, um, we have to start recognizing that addiction is a real disease. And the reason I wanted to start off with this is because so many times I've heard people tell me, it's a choice. Um, yeah, we choose to use, and uh, and that's why. But this is where I think you uh, uh, are very important because of the uh, expertise in this field. So could you explain um, how addiction begins, the, the factors, and how it actually affects the brain? Yep. You know, every chronic disease out there has a disruption in a messaging system. Every chronic disease, cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, all of the thyroid or other endocrine diseases, they all have to do with a messaging system gone awry. And addiction looks exactly like that. And, you know, one could sit there and judge every chronic disease out there. You could get all judgy with all your 
people in who you love who've had heart attacks or have type 2 diabetes because they're not living life perfectly either. Most of us have an extra 10 pounds we can lose. Most of us this time of year are consuming vast quantities of sugar, including myself. Um, most of us didn't go out for an hour long run today and eat, eat, eat vegan today. Most of us live a life that has um, some health risks associated with it. So when you look at what happens to the brain when it develops addiction, multiple neurotransmitters in the brain get disrupted and um, often, in fact, get erased. It doesn't happen the first time that people use, but it happens sequentially over time so that the brain's chemistry is literally different than it was in the beginning. And it takes a couple of years for it to get better. So for anybody to think this isn't a real disease, then again, they should stop and think that all diseases aren't real diseases. You either are going to accept the fact that it is a disease the way that many of them are um, and learn more about it and learn what it takes to get better. One of our problems is we don't give people the time that it gets better because what heals the brain is time and sobriety. And these five or seven or 10 day detoxes actually don't really make many people better in anything that could put them in harm's way because you detox them off a of med, you ship them to the curb and you think they've got it. They don't have anything. They are, their brain is barely functioning at all. And in fact, they're at much higher risk of, of uh, relapse and overdose and dying. And we see that um, all the time, don't we? We see that all the time. Well, you and I see it all the time. We see it all the time in general. You and I see it all the time in a specific circumstance. The highest risk of overdose and dying is after um, discharge from jail. Yep. Um, or even after a long sentence, so not just a pre-sentence release, but somebody who's been incarcerated for a year or a year and a half, most people out there would say, how can they still be addicted? They have been off of alcohol or off of cigarettes for a year and a half. They're good. They're fixed. But what you and I know is actually the way the brain works is it turns on this cycle of craving that starts being preoccupied and pre-planning and thinking, who's going to pick me up at the curb? Are they going to have enough money that I can drive to this next place to get my cigarettes, alcohol, or drugs? Right. And uh, the brain is planning this six or eight weeks in advance of being discharged from jail. And we know that the death rates leaving jail are skyrocketing, particularly between two and four weeks. So the yes. truth is, all of our jails really should be doing much better treatment and, and planning and, and presuming that all of our, our inmates that leave us are planning on relapsing because they may say they're good. You and I know better they're not. We just lost a guy in our jail this month who was discharged, refused any help, any aftercare, any appointments, and he was dead two weeks later. Yeah, that's much more common um, than yeah. people know, so unfortunately. Yeah. And and I, I would just throw in that, you know, we we get to um, see these people when they are clean and sober, and I have to say, like – you know, a lot of them are just regular people, just like you and I. Who they are. Just they are like our and, nieces and nephews. They yeah. are like normal, health, happy, healthy people. Yeah. And again, it, it seems extraordinary that after that prolonged period of time, you think they would be okay. But most often they're not, particularly, and as you and I know, Bill, going back to the place where you used to drink, the place where you used to get high, it literally triggers chemicals in the brain that make you want to return to that behavior. And if you and I could pick up everybody who's trying to get sober and move them to a brand new place and give them plenty of support and plenty of physical exercise and a sense of purpose, many people would do better. But it's really hard. The thing that we're missing in this state more than anything else is long-term structured sober living. So there's plenty of detox beds, you know, like right. 
when the governor talks about more quote unquote beds, I think to myself, we don't need more beds. We need homes where people can go and have structure and support a place where people are not actively using in that building where they allow medical assisted treatment and other psychotropic the patient needs that. I mean, you and I in our own heads could build perfect places. You know, there'd be a lot of physical exertion. People would be planting things in their backyards. They would have pets they could take care of. They would not be bored during the day. They would be working. They would be giving back to communities because that's another part. Having no sense of purpose, oh, that does not make you feel good. Right. You feel like a piece of dirt when you're addicted to something, yeah. a piece of trash. It's really hard to build your self-esteem again. Yeah, and that's the thing I've noticed, too, is like uh, you have to, when you are um, clean and sober at that moment, you have to, you're reminded of all the things that you had to do to, to, mm-hmm. to get that addiction. And that in itself is, that's a whole another issue. Um, right. Well, can you talk about that for a minute then, Bill? I mean, that people will say to me, you know, the, the feeling again, right? Part of alcohol and using drugs is you get numb. You you no longer feel anything. You're on the run. You feel right. nothing. And getting sober again, I think the hardest part of getting sober is all of the emotions that rise to the surface. It is so painful to feel shame and self-loathing and embarrassment. It's even painful to feel happiness or joy. There is no emotion that you feel comfortable with. Well, I mean, was it like that with you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, you really have to. It's, and, and I do think some of these programs are trying to address those those emotional issues, the trauma um, um, that people have experienced. And, and but again, it's one of those things that you have to make yourself a vulnerable and you have to address yeah. that. And that in itself is hard. But I I think one of the keys is is that long term um you know, program. And, you know, maybe, maybe we, um, you know, can, you know, reach out to the politicians and, and, and say, hey, this is what we need. You know, we had Senator Keenan yeah. on this program. Um, he, he's been a, an advocate and a voice um, about this. And so you know, it's good to have everybody involved, you know, like the doctors and then just the blue collar people like myself, the senators. These are the things that we have to keep doing um, right. and to help people. I do want to just ask you, like, you mentioned um, something just a few minutes ago about um, going, um, you know, using and then going back um, kind of, um, you know, you get out and you jump back into your habit. So if I remember correctly, isn't that like the, um, I think you might have mentioned it in your presentation, the reward pathways? Is that? It, it is, you know, that there's a circuit in the brain that is, again, there's multiple chemicals that feed into the circuit. Part of the brain that gets activated in the reward part of the brain is the hippocampus, which governs memory. And it's the reason why literally driving past that Dunkin' Donuts where you used to get high or any Dunkin' Donuts, smelling specifically Dunkin' Donuts coffee makes you want to use again. And you get this craving that is unbelievably intense and maybe that craving only lasts three minutes but if you're able to get drugs in three minutes you're back at it right and what people got to know about cravings is they come they come 127 times a day it's like a wave though the craving will come and the craving can pass the problem is how many times a day can your brain say no in the early months it's a really hard thing yeah when you're surrounded by people that are using when you're surrounded by your old friends and neighbors who are using it is almost impossible to stay sober. It just isn't. I, I look at people and I say, you cannot go home again. Your home may have once been a safe place for you. It no longer is. It is a place that is trying to kill you. And the problem is it's really hard to pick people up and move them because they have family. They have jobs. 
and they have the security of at least knowing their neighborhood, even if they know their neighborhood isn't the right place for them. And again, if you and I, again, ran the world, it is so much cheaper to fund sober, structured um, halfway houses or three-quarter programs that are really well built with lots of trauma treatment, lots of physical exertion, good, strong rules and regulations, yet the freedom to engage in everyday life as well, because both things have to be true. When people are bored and they're on lockdown and they're not allowed to go to the library or go to the gym or actually get a job, that's actually not good for rebuilding dopamine in the brain either. Right. So there's a, a fine balance of well-run programs. But I can tell you, it costs way less money than a hospitalization, way less money than a detox. Yeah, so Dr. Ruth, as you talk about craving, so that's something that everybody can identify with? Everybody has cravings. Um, yes. You know, like some of us like chocolate. What do you have for cravings, Zach? Chocolate. I think we can all agree on chocolate. And I don't know. You're the doctor. So what's that little thing in the back of you? So you see a piece of chocolate and you get that little feeling in the back of your jaw that goes, mm, I can't wait to eat that chocolate. Yeah. What's that called? Any, do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know about the jaw craving. Is that There's a word for that? Yeah, uh, You know, it's almost like a little... Um, I don't know. I don't, there's a like salivation? Maybe, yeah. Maybe that's what it is. Hey, yeah. I'm working. I'm, you know, so. But so, Zach, can I ask you, have you ever decided I'm going to go off chocolate? I'm going to say no to the fudge today. And have you ever successfully done that? Yeah, uh, no. Really? I, I mean, I maybe, a for a, maybe, <laughs> maybe for a, a small a amount while. of time. But, I, I mean, coffee, right? I think with, a lot of your listeners have tried to go off sugar. It takes about five to seven days to get off sugar. And you have cravings all day long. For those first five to seven days, it's all you want. And then, quite honestly, sugar is one of the easier drugs to walk away from. It's hard because it's around us all the time, and yep. it makes so many of us feel better. But once you move past that seven days of sugar craving, it's actually not so hard to stay away from it. So let me ask you a question. And I know you're, you know, we, we want to keep to the time so when it's time for you to roll let me know because um okay. I, i'm just thrilled that you set some time aside for us today to come on and talk i've really been looking forward to having you on so i really truly appreciate non-stop. you setting that aside non-stop. yeah non-stop oh, I'm, a, so I'm, a, nice. I'm a dr I'm ruth pote fan so um but so that craving so everybody can understand that craving can you just briefly explain like the, the high that um, somebody gets off an opiate, it's, you know, we know it's euphoric. I mean, so just people maybe can understand somebody who's in, in the throes of addiction, why they do what they have to do, like the feeling that right. they get and, and that craving and stuff. Could you maybe just share a little bit of that real quick? Yep. Um, I tell this story a lot and because there are people who don't do well in opiates. They use an opiate, it makes them sick, they get nausea, they feel loopy, they actually hate the feeling. But for those of us who like the feeling, and it's not, it's probably the majority of people get at least a little buzz off opiates, um, you know, you feel like I'm unstoppable, I feel happy. It's this really strong sense of euphoria and joy and holy smokes. The way it affects the reward circuit is your brain says, this is so positive, I need to repeat this behavior again. Because that's what that reward circuit of the brain tells you to do. Positive experiences that release dopamine in the brain are the kinds of experiences your brain says must be repeated. Because dopamine spikes have to do with survival. It has to do with this very ancient um behavior of finding food, water, and a mate. And that's what opiates do is they release huge amounts of dopamine in the brain. And the problem is that first high you get, that first 27 highs you get, you never get that again. And after a period of time, as the amount of dopamine in the brain gets down-regulated, 
you aren't getting high ever anymore. You continue to use just to feel something close to remotely normal. Um, and that's sort of the sad part of addiction is if everybody got high forever and felt that good forever, nobody would ever stop. That's right. for sure. But what people don't understand is that is one short lived experience before your life actually falls apart and gets taken away from you. Right. Your family leaves you. You lose your job. You, you cash out your inheritance that should have lasted you for five years. It is gone in one month. You sell your car and your guitar and everything you love and you piss off everybody who once loved you. Yeah. It's amazing what people will give up because of this addiction. And it's not just opiates, it's alcohol too, it's cocaine, it's many things. But it hijacks the brain in this very specific way. And, you know, if people had the ability to look into their future and know what it would turn out like, my thought is that maybe fewer people would launch down that path. Because nobody meant to be an addict, Bill. Nobody wanted this. No, I don't think so. I agree with you. And I, But I think, you know what, uh, we educate our kids, as you said at the beginning, they will make the smart decisions. And unfortunately, we're just at a point where, um, I mean, we're looking at, I think I saw something, 61,000 people have died this year. And that was in December. And um, I mean, yep. that's just, it's absolutely crazy. So, you know, to... That's um, the tip of the iceberg, though, Bill. I really think the next five years, we could be looking at between a quarter million and 500,000 deaths by opiate overdose. <laughs> Because part of the problem is so much of the country is still very heavy-handed prescribing opiates that, you know, when you look at the Southeast and other states, there are doctors who are handing out bottle after bottle. And while you have prescription opiates on the street, people are addicted to them. They're sporting them. They're doing other things. You are less likely to die with a prescription opiate than when you convert to heroin or fentanyl. Once, once that happens, once heroin is distributed widely, it's cheaper than the pills, and then that's the right. fentanyl hits the system. That's when people are going to be dying, and that's yeah. what we have in New England, right? That's what we have in Pennsylvania and Ohio and some of the other um, northeast states. Right. Can I just say something about what you said about talking to our kids? Every yeah. kid is at risk for addiction in some way, shape, or form, but the kids who are at the greatest risk of addiction are the following. Kids who have a strong family history. So if you have a parent or a grandparent with a history of addiction, you have about a 50% chance of addiction yourself. And it is why anybody who's listening to your show who struggles with addiction, your kids need to know that. Even if you're sober, even if you've been in recovery for 20 years, your kids need to understand that the genetics in this one way are working against them. And the only thing they can do to prevent this is to delay their use. Because if they can delay their use until their brain is nearly fully developed, they will not have this disease. They can actually almost entirely cancel out the genetics. You never, ever get to cancel your genetics. But with this one, you do. You delay your use until you're 23 or 24. It is doable. The second high-risk category are our kids who grow up in chaotic, neglectful households at a high risk of childhood trauma. The rates of those kids um, who score high on an adverse childhood experience survey turning to addiction to numb up to be on the run are very high. So acknowledging when our kids have experienced trauma, getting them good trauma treatment, and teaching them early that turning to alcohol or drugs to numb themselves up is the wrong path. Okay. So, Dr. Ruth, because um, we're going to be wrapping this up soon so you can get rolling. Um, um what age do you think, from your experience, would be a great age to start educating the youth on 
addiction and how it begins? What would you suggest is like the fourth grade, the fifth grade? The yeah, sixth it's grade. fourth. It's fourth or fifth grade. It's ages nine, ten, eleven, which I know seems crazy, but the average age of first use for most people is twelve, thirteen, or fourteen. That's the average age, and there's lots of people whose first use is six, seven, or eight. So really, fourth or fifth grade, and you know, you're not talking to your fifth grader about you know cooking down drugs and injecting, you know, IV drugs. It's not that level. It is talking about very basic stuff about alcohol, about marijuana, and about nicotine, how they impact the brain, how they create a brain that constantly wants to use the drug, even though you know it's bad for you. You know the number of people who try to quit smoking? Smoking nicotine is one of the hardest drugs to get off of. And for all of your listeners who still struggle to smoke, they'll talk about it all the time. I simply, I can't even imagine stopping. It's my last vice, yet we know it's the number one killer. That's right. Kids these days are our lowest smokers. They think tobacco is disgusting. You ask the average fourth, fifth, or tenth grader about tobacco, and they say, it's gross. I'll never smoke. Yet tenth graders are vaping products that actually have nicotine in it. So they're actually creating a nicotine addiction, often unbeknownst to them. So I would argue that a kindergartner needs to know that if they find a pill on the ground, they need to get an adult, period. They Correct. never, ever pick up a pill regardless of what it is because most adult medicine will kill a five-year-old. But really, by fourth or fifth grade, you should be talking to your kids about addiction and what it looks like and how it destroys family and lives. I don't think people should be scared to talk about their own family. You don't need to go in the gory details about what Uncle Ricky used to do. But people need to understand that this is a common disease that it affects people that they love, that people can get better. But in families where it runs through our family um, genetic line, these are our families where really you need to instruct your kids to develop a sentence that falls out of their mouth when somebody offers them their first joint or their first solo cup of, of beer of, I'm not interested, I'm protecting my brain. I'm not interested, I'm an athlete. I'm not interested, I'm at higher risk than average because of my genetics. And, and I know it seems silly to say that, but when you practice that with a 14-year-old, they have a response when they're put on the spot in a given moment. Dr. Ruth, last question, and then um, is the parents. So it's very important that the parents educate our youths, and like you said, talk to your kids about it. What would you say to the parents that say the marijuana and the alcohol, just not a big deal, just a rite of passage, it's harmless, I smoked it when I was a kid, it's not a big deal. Yep. What would you yep. say to that? And then we'll close this out. You know, I think there's a certain percent of people for whom it isn't a big deal. But if you can guarantee me, you know, who who's, who is who in that mix, that it isn't going to be your 15-year-old, it's going to be another 15-year-old. Well, you are a better predictor than I am. When I came home with a lock and I put it on a cabinet and I locked all the alcohol up in my family, my three teenagers looked at me and said, Mom, what is wrong with you? Do you not trust us? And I said, uh, no, I don't trust you. You're teenagers. And why would I make it any easier for you to drink alcohol than it already could be? I know what we did in the 1980s in high school with alcohol. We drank everything out of our parents' liquor cabinet. It was probably all horrible, like orange liqueur, but we didn't care. We refilled the bottles with water or something, and our parents appeared not to notice. So why would you raise kids in a household where it's so easy to get this drug? Most parents, I hope, aren't leaving lit cigarettes lying around or packs of cigarettes lying around and allowing their kids to smoke those. And I'm going to tell you, I think marijuana used after the age of 25 in the privacy of somebody's own home is not any worse than alcohol. I don't want you driving a car. I don't want you babysitting my kids or changing the lug nuts on my tire or operating on my knee because you are impaired. What you do in your own house is up to you. 
what happens to somebody under the age of 25 when exposed to marijuana is more and more evident to us. It is a neurotoxic drug impacting the developing brain. And we have more data that looks at this. These, the people who use marijuana starting in their teenage years, they just thrive less well. They do not meet their goals. They have lower IQs. They're less likely to work. They're less likely to graduate from high school or college. So again, this is stuff that parents need to understand. These are not benign drugs while the brain is developing. Awesome. And you know what? We're going to, like I said, I, I told you earlier, we're looking to get you back in April and uh, and give a bigger presentation and ho- to a really, hopefully, a wider audience. And we'll talk more on that marijuana since that's the new thing that's been uh, brought in. And uh, again, thank that's you great. so much, Dr. Ruth. We really appreciate Thanks, having Del. you here. And uh, exactly. happy holidays. And we'll see you happy in 2018. Happy holidays to you, too. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, you guys. Take care. Thank bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. That was good, right? And, yeah, well, we're just going to make some quick announcements, and then uh, we'll wrap this up. I just want to say, Zach, you did a phenomenal job. Um, um, I'm sure when we go back and we look into the comments, people are going to be like. I'm sorry. Uh, you should have just reached over and just casually went like this, and then I would have said, let's turn it over to Zach. So, uh, well, we hope you guys um, – liked um this podcast and whether you agree with it or not that's all well and good um that's what we want we want to kind of get some dialogue going we want to start talking about um you know um substance use disorder addiction and obviously more important the road to recovery because the road to recovery is different for me than it might be for you and we really want to try to explore that and and um so this was a great way to end um 2017 just to get Dr. Ruth in hand to kind of give us a little bit more idea on how addiction begins and how uh, people lead uh, into a life of addiction and um, I think we're looking to do this every other week so this this week is the 20th and then not next week but the week after we'll do another podcast and then every other week we're going to be running the podcast we're going to have different um, guest speakers in um, this was a one time thing for Zach um, again I'm um, Shane. Well, listen, I wouldn't listen. This might be the start of something big right here, um, Zach. For you, you are good on the other side, but you might be phenomenal right here on I'm this a, side. A, that's the problem. I'm too good on this side. I don't, <laughs> don't want to make everyone else look, you know, worse than they already are. And if you are listening to the podcast, so we do stream live, which is what we're doing now um, from uh, Facebook, and and um, and I think we did we stream live before from Instagram. I think Shane was Shane doing that, used right? To do Instagram a little bit, yeah. Yeah. So uh, 2018, we're looking to step it up a little bit. We're we're looking to um, to do a little bit more. So, but if you are uh, listening, um, we do stream it live on Rock Bottom to Recovery. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Podbean. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I believe that's the name of it. Boy, iTunes. I mean, iTunes. If you have iTunes, find iTunes, us on man. iTunes. If, we'll if you don't iTunes. have iTunes, you got a serious issue, and we probably want to have you on so we can talk about that, correct? Maybe they're afraid of, you know, getting hooked on music. Well, people, uh, podcasts. yes, because you can get, that must release some type of dopamine, right? I'm sure. You hear a good people, beat, yeah. right, Jenna? Yeah, Jenna's agreeing with us. She's back there, so. Um, all right, so um, anything we need to say to close out? Um, well, I, I just, one thing that I, I, the question I did want to ask her, and I was I'm curious. So you've heard me say this before. You know that uh, I I say this jokingly and, and in all seriousness a lot. Um, you know, for years, uh, big business money's you know money's been in the medicine, not the cure. You know, like keep taking the medicine. Yeah. You know, we're not going to cure what's wrong with you, but here's the medicine. So my my uh, 
I wanted to ask her, is she seeing, so in a place like Massachusetts, they're not prescribing as much. Money is shifting more towards treatment. Yeah. Uh, you know, is the money going towards the treatment and not necessarily the cure anymore? Like, where, is there, are you starting, to, uh, she, you know, are people starting to see some of those, uh, so some of those things rear their ugly head, that, you know, funding places that maybe shouldn't get funding? And, and yeah. I, I have no idea. I'm, just, I'm literally the worst person to be talking about this because I don't have any background of information uh, or, or education on any of this stuff. But it's just a question that comes to my mind when I, when I think about that, I, I wanted to ask her to, to get her point of view. But I, so I think um, I think uh, we're pretty set on the date to have Dr. Ruth Pote back, and that's going to be April 26th, and it will be um, in our town um, location to be announced. Um, and that would might be a good that's place a good for um, to ask that question because it will obviously be a much larger presentation, a little bit more involved, which is what we're looking to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are looking to do that with the Holbrook Cares Coalition, which is what I belong to. They also have a Facebook page, so I would strongly encourage you to go to check that out. Um, and um, we have the drop-in center, and I had the paperwork here, and I don't know where it is. Um, I wish I did. But that's also located on the Holbrook Cares Coalition. I don't want to – I know we meet – it's like the first Monday of every – The drop-in uh, center? The drop-in center, yeah. I think it's the first Monday. It's the first Monday, and it's at the Brookville Baptist Church. And that's um, – it's in the basement in the hall. And that's an opportunity um, if you know someone or a family member or yourself, you want to come in. We um, we have all kinds of resources available. Um, uh, we do some NACAN training. But mainly if you go to the Hobart Cares Coalition uh, page, uh, we're always um, – we have something always going on, and we just love to get people to come out, to get involved, to be educated. Because as Dr. Ruth said, that's what it is, um, education. And we know, like through with the whole smoking thing, that, um, you know, if you educate our youth, they will make smart decisions. Um, and so that's all we, we're looking to do is educate the parents, educate ourselves, um, I don't know a lot. I'm still trying to learn. I'm here. I'm just trying to make a difference. And um, and I think that's it. So with that I'm said. Just I was just trying to find out the dates of the drop-in center. I apologize for. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, no, no, I think it is the, um, it's the, it's the first Monday of the yeah. month in Holbrook. And like I said, but you can go to the Holbrook Cares Coalition page and uh, you can get all that information. Bill will be uh, auditioning for new guest hosts. Uh, so anybody out there who's interested in. Uh, and edu well educated on this topic, or at least thinks they uh, they are. And you know, honestly, you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that, Zach, because we we want to cover as much as possible. So, like, if you work for an insurance company, uh, we'll put you in. We'll we'll put one of those things over your face, so and we'll disguise your voice so it's like. Um, and um, you know, get talk, tell us from the insurance point of view on recovery. Um, if you whatever we want to, that's, uh, that's actually a great point because you and I were talking about this off air uh, yesterday, the day before, about trying to b get your guests lined up for the next couple yeah. of episodes and trying to figure out. And, and and you've reached out to many many places to I try know. to get to try to get people to hey, you know, we've got this podcast. It, it's you would hope people would be a little more responsive. I mean, it's a big issue. It's a big uh, problem in this area and, and many others. And I'm sure you've been kind of deflated a few times, like, oh, this person's definitely <laughs> going to want to talk to us and then yeah. not get anything. So if, if anybody out there uh, has some connections with some people who might be 
you know, well-educated on this, please send it along to, to Bill so he can uh, keep the show rolling with some fresh guests. Yeah, and you can message us at, um, through the Hope of Chaos Coalition, or you can go right to the rock bottom to recovery page and throw us a message there because, um, like Zach said, I was actually very surprised. I reached out to a lot of people and didn't get any responses back, and I'm just I'm kind of amazed at that because— You're intimidating, Bill. It's tough to sit I, next to you. Me? And... I send you a message. I'm not, like, intimidating at all. I don't, I don't think I am, but what, but what? Um, and I don't want to be. Um, what I want to do is— it's, like, it's got to be the scally, which I love my scallies. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just um, I, I'm just I was I was a little taken aback because I'm like, wow, I can't get any responses. Am I am I not sending out the right message or whatever? Um, I would just think, I mean, like I just said, sixty one thousand in the month of December we've lost this year. Like it's hard for me to understand that. Just like. Everybody is somehow not Im- impacted one way or another, whether through family or friend. Um, and I know people's thoughts can be like, oh, that guy's a piece of crap, and they did this and they did that. And I know people that have done that, but I also know people that have lived that life who've done some crazy things to feed that addiction who are now in recovery and in, and really giving back to the community mm-hmm. and uh, and have a sense of purpose and and. and uh, and uh, value and and they're given back and those are the we want to let people know and family members know that that is available to you how do we get there i don't know we're gonna we're gonna figure that out so with that said thank you guys for tuning in we really really appreciate it um like our page share our page if you have some information if you share a point of view you can message us on that page um we want to hear from everybody every opinion is valued every opinion is respected we might not agree, but that's all well and good too. We also um, know we got to try to figure out a way to kind of work some questions in from like you know callers or people yeah, shoot, shoot like maybe get a hotline or text line. Yeah, we're gonna do that because 2018. I really want to step this up. I think this is a great venue. This is a great um, uh, place to really get that information out there. So we yeah, 2018. We might, we might even get an AOL account. Might get an AOL account. All right, this is all good. So. Um, Guys, thank you so much. You have a safe holiday, um, and we look forward to not um, next week, but the week after. We're going to be going live again. Usually Wednesdays around 4.15, 4.30. If you have a topic that you think should be discussed, message us. Message us. Reach out and and share your information. With that said, you guys be safe. Thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Happy holidays. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.